The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's get over right now to Seti Coscarelli. He's the CEO of TAT Global Alternatives, and we're going to talk about um, marijuana legalization, which is Big here in the U.S. Uh, I don't think the Germans smoke pot. Um, they basically, it's just, if you're a beer, if you smell someone smoking weed in Germany, it's usually a Brit or an American living in <laughs> East Berlin. But I just walked up Lexington Avenue and yeah. saw a store that was selling actual weed and gummies with THC. Sure. None of the CBD, you know, fake nope. fakery going on um, there. Seti, is this going to sweep the nation? Is it going to sweep the globe and become as normal as, you know, drinking liquor? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I do think that it has the absolute potential to do that. Um, you know, it, it, it's a, obviously a burgeoning category. There's, there's a number of countries that have started to legalize it now. And I think in the U.S., once those laws start to pass, uh, you'll likely see... Um, obviously a lot more uptake uh, in the market. All uh, right, Seti, so the, the, the big issue for the development of the cannabis market in the U.S. has been federal legalization. We've had a lot of states, a lot of big states, including New York and New Jersey, legalize it. So but where are we in terms of federal legislation? Well, they, 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 they've tried to pass a number of these laws uh, through the House. Ultimately, you know, when, when you kind of take a look at this, it's, it's always just this tug of war between fear and greed. And and I think, you know, for, for as much as cannabis has been illegal federally in the U.S., I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find any American or, or very few Americans that haven't tried it uh, up until this point. Now, I do think that society as a whole is becoming a lot more progressive and open to the idea, so I think it's just a matter of time before it does end up passing. But even though certain states have legalized it, in order for it to really take hold, you need that federal legalization so that banks can now start getting involved in providing financing and really yes. allowing these companies to generate sort of the capital and access the capital markets in a way that they can become uh, large organizations, which is really what's needed in the U.S. if you want to see this market flourish. 100%. I mean, um, the banking issue is, I would say, probably the, the biggest in terms of growth, right? Uh, what kind of growth do you expect from from marijuana well i think it's again it, it's still a burgeoning category and when you kind of take a look at uh the product itself i think in the beginning a lot of people thought that cannabis was going to compete with tobacco um but as a whole it really doesn't cannabis competes more with alcohol given sort of the the drugs that are involved of course right? the thc is going to compete with alcohol cbd on the other hand does have the ability to compete uh with tobacco which is what you know, our company is, is primarily focused on. Why? Because it helps you so, quit smoking tobacco or what? Well, exactly. Right. I think one of the things that we're really proud of is that we've been able to apply 
uh, hemp, which is a derivative of cannabis that doesn't have any THC but does contain CBD. We've been able to figure out that when you can apply CBD to a cigarette smoker, it does have a high likelihood of helping them eliminate that nicotine addiction because CBD in and of itself isn't addictive. It's also not psychoactive, right? So when you think about the, the pool of smokers, which is immense, and a lot yeah. of people don't really understand how big the tobacco market is. It's, it's like the Mount Everest of markets, um, you know, comparatively to water. Uh, the bottled water market is about $250 billion a year. Globally, tobacco is approaching a trillion dollars a year. Wow. The so CBD is not huge. addictive. It's not psychoactive, and it doesn't cause lung cancer. And, you know, people behind you on the street don't hate you for it. I mean, there's so many, right. uh, you know, there's so many arguments for it. My question is on the uh, the THC side, and, and maybe this isn't, you know, your wheelhouse, but I just wonder, are we going to find out that a kid who smoked a ton of weed in high school and college— I know a lot of kids like that very, very well, um, yeah, ends yeah. up having some kind of mental health issues later in life because I know a lot of kids like that too. Well, look, I think you, one of the things that they're going to have to figure out is the regulations around the substance, no different than they have the regulations around alcohol, right? At a certain point, when the, the cognitive factors of the brain have sort of finished developing, you know, consuming these substances won't have the same effect as when you consume them when you're in the developmental stage. Yeah. So could have been the they, booze. As they, <laughs> right. As they kind of progress on uh, on the regulatory side, those are the things that they're going to have to figure out, and it would probably make sense that they regulate the substance similar to how they would regulate alcohol and put um, certain age limits on when someone would be able to legally go in and buy it. Like we wouldn't expect a three-year-old or a ten-year-old to want to go in and buy cannabis legally. Talk no to us. Wouldn't expect a ten-year-old to walk into a store and buy a can of beer. Sadie, talk to us about the Tat cigarettes. What are they? How do how do they work? So basically, what we've done is we've taken uh, a hemp biomass and we've processed it in a way so that it tastes and behaves like tobacco, which is fundamentally different than what other, let's call it, hemp cigarettes in the market would have been able to do. Because one of the key things for smokers is that they want a taste profile that resembles a cigarette. Now, one thing I can tell you is that the number of smokers that exist, there's almost 40 million smokers in, in the U.S. alone. About 75% of them have tried vape. Yet, if you take a look at the market of smokers, the number of smokers still outweighs the number of vapors, 20 to 1, which tells you what the preferred delivery mechanism is. However, you know, I used to work at Philip Morris, and I understand this quite well. You'd be hard-pressed to find a smoker that enjoys the fact that it's a nicotine. Mm. And... When you take a look at a lot of the vape companies, they're trying to sell you on this reduced risk element. However, they're still overly reliant on the crutch of addiction in order to sell their wares. Yeah. Which I think is absurd. Reliant? That's right? the point. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it, it's, it's so it's easy to sell something that's there, addictive. There isn't any other product. Yeah. There isn't any other product on it that you have to buy because you're addicted to it. You can buy it because you like it, and there's still a market to be had. So, why can't we apply that similar mindset to tobacco and provide smokers with something? that they can consume by choice yeah. and not by need. And that's exactly what we're doing. So we've eliminated the tobacco. We've eliminated the nicotine. We give you the same format as a cigarette, but deliver CBD instead, which will still satiate a smoker the same way nicotine will, but won't create an addiction. I, and that way we can give the freedom to choose yeah. back to smokers, and they can decide. You want to smoke? Smoke. You don't want to smoke? Don't smoke. Any chance you got a chewing tobacco alternative? Can you... <laughs> Can you help me get oh, get rid of the too. Copenhagen? Ah, <laughs> uh, you like you like to dip? 
I mean, yes. I don't know if I should say that publicly because it's you kind should. of embarrassing, especially at my age. But yeah, especially yeah. if I'm at a baseball game or driving a pickup truck or listening to country music, I like to throw in a lip. <laughs> it, it's a great, it's a great alternative. Boy, you're looking at the markets here, uh, Matt. We had that big sell-off on Monday. Concern about growth, concern about the Delta variant and its impact on this economy. But boy, the market recovered, to say the least, over these past four days. And uh, again, let's get a sense of where we go from here. Brenda O'Connor joins us. She's a senior vice president, financial advisor, UBS International, based in Miami, I believe, if my notes are correct. We can talk about what's going on down there in southern Florida with all the exodus from Wall Street. But Brenda, give us a sense of how you some of the conversations you had with your clients this week after that big sell-off on Monday and, and, and the subsequent rebound for the remainder of the week, what are some of the conversations you were having? Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty wild start to the week. And, you know, when the markets traded off around 2%, you know, it looked pretty familiar to how and what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we saw the rallying of the U.S. dollar, a drop in equities, a drop in oil, and an increase in bond yields. And as you said, you know, this was quickly reversed on Tuesday, and we've seen markets grind higher throughout the week. And here we are on Friday, the S&P is up over 16% year to date. And so, you know, while some investors are, are concerned about the strength of re the recovery, whether that's because of the Delta variant or inflation, you know, for the most part, uh, our clients are big proponents that this recovery will stay intact. And we're so what, positive on, on risk assets. What do you do, though, with clients? I had dinner with a bunch of traders last night who have just made so much money that they want to get some of it into cash before this turns around. Not like it's going to turn around anytime soon, but you don't need to ride out the last 100 points of the S&P 500. Do you start moving them out? No. So we're not big proponents of moving to cash. I think the tactical things that we've been speaking to clients this week about are taking profit in sectors like U.S. tech, for example. I mean, the NASDAQ was up 38% last year. It's up another 14% uh, this year. And so this is an opportunity, given where valuations are, where we're happy to take a little profit off the table and allocate it to sectors that we do like. So, Brenda, think Talk to us about how you're talking to your clients about uh, international exposure. I know down in Miami, that, you know, gets tends to be a nice international community, a global community down there, and I'm, I'm guessing that's reflected a little bit in, in your book. How would, are you and your clients thinking about international investment opportunities? Right. So we're still positive on equities on a whole. And, you know, there's still sectors of the U.S. market that we like, although, you know, we do like certain parts of, of Asia. And a lot of my families aren't even looking at equities. They're turning to things like alternative investment mm. classes. So, you know, these are our, our clients tend to have very long term time horizons. There are great correlation benefits to alternative uh, asset classes. Um, you know, investors are often rewarded for a with a liquidity premium. So we've been looking at things like private uh, private real estate and private equity, specifically in the secondary space. Well, luckily, some private equity firms are raising some big funds right now. <laughs> Carlisle raising exactly. a $27 billion fund, right? Blackstone just uh, wrapped up last year a $26 billion fund. Um, I think $520 billion came into private equity in the first half. There's a lot of cash sloshing around, isn't there? Yeah, there, there definitely is. And so there are certain parts of the private equity market that we'd maybe stay away from. But again, um, there are subsets like um, um, secondaries that we're, we're really big fans of. And we still think that you can get kind of mid-teen, high-teen net 
returns on these asset classes. And if we look forward um, to the next five years and we look at UBS's capital market assumptions, I mean, um, those returns kind of beat what we think equities may do over the next three to five years or the market cycle. Brenda, you know, Get a, love to get a sense of how you're viewing U.S. equities. What are some of the sectors you like? Because there is a little bit of a push and pull out there between some of the folks that are saying, boy, I'm sticking with those growth names, the, the Amazons, the apples of the world that have done so well for me for such a long time. And then there's obviously people that are you know, kind of rotated into the more cyclical side of the market and maybe benefited from the, some of this reopening trade, if you will. I'd love to get a sense of kind of where you uh, are putting your clients' assets right here in the U.S. Yeah, so I'll talk about uh, two sectors that we like right now, and that's uh, consumer discretionary and financials. I mean, with financials, yes, uh, you know, the sector is up 25% year to date, but we still think there's upside here, and that's really based on two reasons. Um, the first is, you know, in an interest rate increasing environment, this um, this, asset, this subset will will tend to outperform. And then a lot of the banks that raise these big provisions for loan losses are now starting to release some of this capital, and we think that's going to benefit um, bank and financial names. The other area we're looking into is consumer discretionary, and this is really on the notion that there is just a ton of cash sitting on uh, corporate and household balance sheets. If we look at household balance sheets as an example, I mean, U.S. savings as a percentage of disposable income is around 12 or 13 percent. Listen, it's not as high as it was earlier in the pandemic at 35 percent, but it's much higher than the five to seven percent. That's the historical average. So our view is as this cash uh, continues to work its way through the system, it will benefit sectors like consumer discretionary. Anything you like in fixed income? I mean, I know um, it's tough to chase returns there, find returns there, even um, the further you got the risk spectrum. Yeah, so, you know, most of my clients view their portfolios as an overall asset allocation and a diversified portfolio. So we still have, you know, strategic allocations to fixed income, but we tend and are tending to um, stay away from that now. But we still have, you know, I would argue 10 to 15% allocated to liquidity, cash, and fixed income. Hey, Brenda, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Brenda O'Connor, Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor for UBS uh, International. Uh, her clients taking a look at private equity here in search for returns. As Matt was just suggesting, boy, in the fixed income market with a 10-year 1.28%, tough to find some yield out there. So some of the folks with longer-term investment horizons putting some of that money to work in the private equity. And as Matt mentioned, some big, big money's being raised out there by some of these big funds. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now let's talk real estate. Cushman and Wakefield's head of uh, head economist and, and head of retail research, Ken McCarthy, joins us. And this is a hot topic, um, hot industry, and you know pricing on at least on the the retail side, the residential side, I should say, has been amazing. But I have to say, Ken, as I walk through um, the Valley of Manhattan and look left and right. Everything looks closed. It looks empty. I mean, here in our, I guess, Vornado building, right, we have no more um, anchor tenants. Home Depot is gone. Uh, 
Container Store is gone, H&M is gone, and no one's replaced them. So it looks really bad. How is it? So uh, thanks very much. It, I don't think it's as bad as it looks. You know, I think retail has been challenged for a little while now because of uh, e-commerce penetration. And then when COVID hit, it was considered that this was going to be the end of retail, the apocalypse. Uh, and definitely there have been some store closings. There have been some movement around in, in where companies uh, or retailers uh, decide to locate. But overall, the amount that's being spent by consumers continues to grow. I think it's just a matter of location more than anything else. Uh, you know, many cities, uh, particularly cities like New York, which uh, rely heavily on uh, public transit, have seen uh, much slower adoption of uh, back to work. Uh, and that's particularly in a place like Midtown, where most of the retail is in office buildings. That's creating some challenges. But overall, as we look at the retail sector, uh, in commercial real estate, it actually performed surprisingly well in the downturn. So I know it, it's interesting. I know for retail, the the the, the strategy, the the buzzword for many years has been omni-channel. You know, uh, an example of that would be you know buying something online but picking it up at the physical store. So that breathes some life into a lot of the retailers in terms of the bricks and mortar. Is that a long-term trend? Do you think? Well, certainly right now, the consumer is king in the retail world. Whatever the consumer wants, retailers are trying to get it to them. Uh, it's, it's going to be a combination. I think you're right. Omnichannel is a good way of, of describing it, but it's also about, um, it's about digitally native brands. Think uh, Amazon, as an example, are now going into bricks and mortar. So it, it's a fusion of both of those at the same time. Uh, that's going to that's going to lead to higher demand for bricks and mortar as well. I think net net, consumer spending is rising. It's probably going to continue to grow, and as it does, the pie is going to get bigger. Uh, but the question is, you know, how much of it is going to be e-commerce? How much of it is going to be bricks and mortar? Net net, most of it's going to be bricks and mortar in terms of overall, as it is today. Now, Ken, as you're speaking, we're watching the S and P 500 extend gains to set yet another intraday record high. So, you know, at least if you're invested, you're. Wealth is rising. Companies have more power in the stock market. And although a lot of debt has been taken on, as we were you know, just talking um, uh, with our previous guests about, financing costs are basically nothing. So um, what does this mean for the market? Um, is, there, is there opportunity to come in and get some deals here? Is there value out there? Or um, you know, is it fairly valued now? I think that's very location sensitive, first of all. But uh, second of all, I think there was value. I think a lot of that has already taken place. Uh, that as we go forward, they're, they're, the opportunities are starting to diminish a little bit. Uh, there, there are definitely, if you're an occupier, there are places you can go and, and get take advantage of, of softer markets. But overall, uh, I think the market is probably pretty close to fairly priced right now. It's a good point to keep reminding us, by the way, that it's very location specific. Yeah. And I'm sure, Ken, you probably have to remind people about this a lot because it is such a, I mean, it's not, um, you know, one solid, America's very big, um, commercial real estate is global, I'm assuming, you know, and so it, it's difficult for, for the layperson to really get that through, uh, or for me at least, to get that through my thick skull. Sure. No, I, I feel the same way. When I you know, walk the streets, I think this is the way it is everywhere. And, I, and you have to 
step back and say, no, you know, some cities, cities that don't have uh, as heavy a reliance on public transit, for example, a lot of people drive to work, they're seeing much higher occupancy rates than cities that do rely on, on transit. And that affects, the, you know, it affects where uh, retailers are going to open, where they're going to go in the future, things like that. So, yep, as they always say in, in uh, real estate, it's all about location. All right. Well, my location is Midtown Manhattan. So here's my question. Will Midtown Manhattan, will Manhattan in general, what's the expectation within the commercial real estate community? What needs to happen for this to come back? Because the vacancy rates, as Matt mentioned, are just stunning to, to behold. And is it just simply a question of they got to lower the rates? So I, I think it's going to be about economic growth. That's the fundamental driver. We, we need to see more people in in the city, going to work in the office space. When that happens, then you'll see uh, more retailers come back with them and start to uh, reopen stores that may have been shut down. But the key thing is going to be uh, getting more people on the streets over the long run. Yeah, it's a good point. I went over to Chick-fil-A yep. this morning at 6 a.m. to try and uh, get my first taste of that <laughs> fast food chain. I've never been there before. And um, there was a sign on the window that said, we're closed until later because there's no one here. Yeah. Right? And well, then there's probably no one to staff it as well. That's also probably a big issue. Yeah. I'm, I, 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 I think, you know, and af after that, I walk around and I notice all of the delis are just not open as early as they used to. And why would they be? Because I was the only person walking around the streets. <laughs> Especially on a Friday morning, quite frankly. I'm in the office, but, um, you know, it's, it's a bit slow to, to, uh, to pick up overall. And, and I think you're right. Um, it's going to take a while. So wh where where are the strong places for commercial real estate right now? Well, if you look at migration, uh, that's a good indicator. A lot of it is in uh, in the, uh, the Sun Belt, so places like Texas and Florida, which have uh, which recovered a little bit sooner. They're also seeing uh, faster growth in demand for office space, more occupancy than we saw, and driving that also is going. You know. As we see more people moving, uh, migrating into the Sun Belt, which is in a long-term trend, it's not a, a new trend. Um, that's going to drive demand. That's going to drive demand, and demand is going to drive uh, more occupiers, whether they're retailers or uh, or office occupiers, into those areas to tap into that growth. All right, Ken. Thanks so much for joining us. Ken McCarthy is an economist and the retail research lead over at Cushman and Wakefield, talking to us about commercial real estate and the retail side. I wish we saw these vacancies in in residential real estate, like especially in Westchester. That would be fantastic for me, but unfortunately, it's quite the opposite. Boy, what a week it's been here. It was a decidedly risk off day on Monday, and again calls about uh, the Delta variant and the impact on economic growth. But boy, the markets have kind of turned it around since then. Greg Staples, head of fixed income for the Americas for DWS Group, which stands for in German? Deutsche Wertpapierspezialisten. Hike. All right, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Greg, talk to us about what you're seeing in your credit markets, you know, over the recent trading days. You know, it's actually been a pretty interesting market. We actually, we're pretty positive on credit overall. It's, uh, it's good that American corporations have taken this opportunity with low interest rates and tight spreads over the past year to issue, uh, to issue a fair amount of debt. The market's been receptive, and they've strengthened their balance sheet, and they've pushed out maturities. So they're 
in as good a shape as we've ever seen them. So we're we're pretty positive on credit overall, and and now they've got uh, the, the the positive of uh, improving uh, economic and market conditions. If you dig right in there, if a client comes and gives you some money to put to work, what do you like best? Well, it's a tough market because in the fixed income markets, with interest rates tenure at one thirty and credit spreads extremely tight. There's not a lot of upside here, but you are going to earn some coupon interest, which is pretty decent. So we like investment-grade credit, got to be selective. We like high yield at the upper end of the credit spectrum. And there are some opportunities in structured finance as well, uh, like floating rate debt, because we do think that the Fed is going to start raising interest rates probably at the end of next year. And you do get that upside as they start to, uh, to move shorter-term rates up. Hey, Greg, talk to us about just credit quality in general. It seems like with the Fed being so accommodative, we the credit quality has really kind of hung in there, and you know, going into this pandemic, you know, I was kind of looking across the high yield space, saying, "Oh boy, here are a lot of credits that are going to be at risk here. We're going to see a lot of defaults, but we really haven't, have we?" No, and we've seen a lot of upgrades as well. I'd say again, for the most part, corporations have, have taken the opportunity to to strengthen their balance sheet. They've got a lot of liquidity there, and they pushed off maturities, meaning they refinanced by prepaying near term maturity debt and refinancing with longer term maturity debt. Overall, debt levels are high. Let's, let's not ignore that. But the point is they've been refinancing with lower coupon as well. So debt service, meaning what they have to actually pay on an annual basis to meet those interest payments and ultimately the maturities, that's in actually pretty good shape. So we think it's a positive. But you're not getting the returns um, that, that you'd like to, I'm sure, for, for the risk. Are you getting paid for the risk? I think you're getting paid for the risk, not too much more than that. And yes, you're not going to get the returns. It's not a situation where, of course, in the bond market, you're benefiting from declining interest rates if you own a bond with a high coupon and high and, and a high interest rate environment and rates come down. The price of your bond goes up, and there's where a lot of the return comes from. But in terms of the current coupon, the current yield right now, you're going to be earning maybe 2% on a good investment-grade bond and maybe 4% on a, uh, on a high-yield bond, which, which isn't fantastic. But given the alternatives that are available elsewhere in the marketplace, I mean, you've got cash earning virtually zero and, you know, equity dividends are OK. It's still probably not a bad place to park your money. All right. Talk to us about this Federal Reserve. How are you viewing, you know, the risk here, the tapering risk to the marketplace? It seems like the Fed is, you know, doing all that they can to kind of communicate and signal and, and all of that good stuff, trying to avoid a taper tantrum again. Is is, is that kind of how you view it or are you kind of? pricing in some, some risk here as maybe rates start to tighten? Well, first off, we, we do think that the Fed is going to begin tapering. And I think that uh, Powell and the rest of the Fed are going to try and inoculate the market as much as they can by talking about it, talking about it, talking about it, and probably won't, won't implement it until the end of the year, call it December or January, and probably through a reduction in their mortgage-backed purchases initially. They're scared to death about what was what we would call a taper tantrum, meaning the, the pulling back of that quantitative easing injecting a fair amount of volatility in the marketplace. There was an episode in 2013 that was really egg on the face of, of the Fed back then. To be honest with you, I think no matter what they do, there's going to be volatility. I think when you, when you remove uh, the biggest whale in the marketplace that's been buying a, $120 billion of treasuries and mortgages every month, and you start to pull back from that, no matter what you think, there's going to be some volatility there. There's really not much you can do about it. The impacts are seen and unseen, and it's worked its way through the equity markets and the overall risk markets. It's a little bit like pulling, uh, I, I hate to go here, but, but a drug addict off the drug, and there's going to be some, some volatility as a result. There's, there's no way to get away from it. Uh, how important is Jackson Hole for you? How important is it for um, you know, fixed income investors to pay attention in August? Well, it's obviously what they communicate, and we think this could be the, the place where they do start to talk about tapering. The Fed meets next week, and I know it's going to be a, 
a big item of discussion. We won't find out until what they really talk about until the minutes come out somewhere after that. But I think there is an expectation or at least a, a possibility that at the Jackson Hole meeting, they do start to broach this tapering idea and, and present a framework for the pulling back later in the year. Just real quick, Greg, 30 seconds. Where are you and your team doing your work today? Where are we doing our work? Where are you home? Credit work? In the office. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was asking about that. Uh, we're, we're, we're in a hybrid right now, but we expect to be going back on a, on a more dedicated basis after Labor Day. Uh, three days a week, four days a week. Uh, we've got some people in Manhattan that, quite frankly, want to be in five days a week. They're in studio apartments and uh, would rather be in the <laughs> office than out. People on the other side with long commutes would be happy two days a week. But we're, be, we're being sensitive to our employees' needs and looking to go back on that uh, positive hybrid basis after Labor Day. All right, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate uh, hearing from you, getting your thoughts on these credit markets. Greg Staples, yeah, head of fixed income for the Americas of DWS Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.